And now, a word from our sponsor. Lightning Recap. In real ghost stories, disturbing paranormal stories based on true events, author Eve S. Evans gives us 17 ghostly tales inspired by true life. Do you like ghost stories? Are true tales of terror your thing? Then you should read the wonderful books of author Eve S. Evans. I just read 50 terrifying real ghost stories, and let me tell you, it is a chilling collection of stories, all taken from real-life paranormal encounters. You can find Eve S. Evans' work on Amazon, and you really should, because these are some of the finest true ghost stories you'll ever hear. Tell me a story. The bearded man sitting on my living room sofa commands. The situation, I must admit, is anything but pleasant. I'm someone who writes stories, not someone who tells them. And even that isn't something I do on demand. The last time anyone asked me to tell him a story, it was my son. That was a year ago. I told him something about a fairy and a ferret. I don't even remember what exactly. And within two minutes, he was fast asleep. But here, the situation is fundamentally different because my son doesn't have a beard or a pistol because my son asked for the story nicely. And this man is simply trying to rob me of it. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. It's Short Story Short Podcast. I am Christopher J. Garcia, who happens to be a Hugo-nominated fanzine editor, and today I am here with... Christy Baxter, who is not a Hugo-nominated fanzine editor. I really thought that that was going to stop when we finished the Hugos, but that's okay. That's okay. You should be proud. Yeah, you should be. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's been a wonderful, crazy, wild week. We just wrapped up our six-parter on... Seven-parter, I'm sorry, uh, on the Hugos. So, Christy... Yes? How did we get back in the flow of the mainstream in reading a short story this past week? We read Suddenly a Knock at the Door by Edgar Carrots, and we liked it. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, This is the first story we've had translated from the Hebrew. It is our first translated story in a long time, I think, was the last one. uh, The Handsomest Drowned Man in the World? Very well could be. Yeah. And this is a story that I would go so far as to say it uses a very postmodernist take on what is essentially a sitcom episode. Mm. Yeah, there's there's some really delightful moments here and surreal too. It's it's got that. Uh, that that element of sort of you know there's a there's a meta element for sure. Uh, there's uh, moments when it feels like uh, do you ever see a Stranger Than Fiction? The yes, yes that, that that was a, a very um, <clears throat> sort sort of that that postmodern take where whatever the writer writes becomes truth, and we sort of have that here in a way. It's 
it's really hard to put into words the story, which is kind of ironic. It's not like somebody's holding a gun to my head. Um. <laughs> which is a major point of this story. It really is. I think it was a delightful, it's a delightful surprise because you've got the basic concept of a man being held at gunpoint and being told to tell a story. And so the first thing that he does is he, he you know, what, what writers do when we need something exciting to happen there's have somebody come in with a gun you know i mean it could be the equivalent depending on genre you know just have somebody come in with a laser sword you know whatever <laughs> but it is it, so he does that but there's already someone there with a gun and now they both want him to tell a story <laughs> and and then it sort of becomes this spin on the fact that we are sometimes as writers forcing ourselves to tell stories and sort of explaining that feeling in a way to the reader. And what I really love about this is there is, of course, in drama, the idea of Chekhov's gun. Mm -hmm. That if you put the gun on the mantle in the first act, by the third act, it has to be fired. When I was in grad school, we got so it was just almost like a, a thing that pointing out any Chekhov's gun, but it was, you know, it, that's, that's Chekhov's checkbook. That's Chekhov's, you know, whatever item it was that would, would show up in act one and, and come into play in act three. It was always very much like the Chekhov's this, that Chekhov's squid. I don't even know. What were we reading? Um, yeah, <laughs> there is, <laughs> there is, it's, it, it, I didn't even think about that take on Chekhov's gun here but it is kind of that take that you know and in the end the gun isn't even really a gun the gun is the pressure we put on ourselves and that was the, the real friends we made along the way <laughs> correct but the thing i really love about this again whoever did the translating on this really i think kicked it out of the park for a number of reasons um Here's one of my absolute favorite segments. Sweden, the place the bearded guide made Aaliyah from is progressive and is way up there in quite a few areas. Sweden isn't just ABBA or Ikea or the Nobel Prize. Sweden is a world unto itself and whatever they have, they got it by peaceful means. Just, if you are going to describe Sweden in any way, that's how you do it. That is, that like is exactly. Note, they led with ABBA. Um, that's just money, money, money. Uh, it's a beautifully written story that is also excessively Israeli. And I love that about it. It is the, if you read a lot of uh, Israeli literature in translation, or even a lot of uh, Israeli writers who are writing in English, what you see is there's a lot of uh, reflection of what they sort of see as a violent nature of the world that they are living in and being forced to sort of poke fun and laugh at it. And that's absolutely here. It's not only pointing at it and sort of laughing at it, but is also pointing at it as saying, you know what? This isn't just our place in the world. This is also us as people. And, you know, this wouldn't be happening if we were in Sweden well, that's true, unless you've read The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which says otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't speak much to the 
Israeliness of it having, I've, I'm not really super well versed in Israeli literature, but there was, it definitely has a, a flavor and, and a voice that I, I feel is, is retained from the original, I'm just guessing, uh, but still also manages to be, uh, you know, have sort of that, uh, you know, feeling that we English speakers can really approach. So it manages to walk that line. And it's just, it, 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 it brings in also like different nationalities. It's very multinational. You know, you've got the Swede, you, you've got our, our, our protagonist who's Israeli, you've got a Moroccan, you know, it's, it's just very much <laughs> like this incredible multinational coalition of people trying to force him to write a story, tell a story. What I really love also is that, so there is a theory that uh, all post-war Jewish American writers had to somehow uh, reflect on the Holocaust and include it. And when Philip Roth didn't in one of his stories, he got major flack for it. That same sort of concept uh, appears today is if you are an Israeli writer, you have to be reflecting on the Palestinian situation. And what I have to say is one of the funniest and also at the same time thought-provoking and darkest uh, moments in here. Let's see. He just got here from Sweden and in Sweden, it's completely different. Over there, if you want something, you ask politely and most of the time you get it, but not in the stifling, sultry Middle East. All it takes is a single week around here to figure out how things work or rather how things don't work. The Palestinians asked for a state nicely. Did they get one? The hell they did. <laughs> just it's so simply stated there <laughs> that the world that they they live in is completely separate from this world of uh, the Swedes, which is sort of this representation of they use Sweden in the same way we Americans use Canada. Yes, that is a good point. The the a, a good little SAT, you know, blank is to blank as blank is to blank there, whatever those are called. There's a word for them, but I. I don't know. Um, Analogies. It's a thought with another thought's hat on. Is that an analogy? Okay. I thought it was another like word that I, I'm like less familiar with, but okay. I, I guess right. I should be more familiar with that. Uh <laughs> yeah. Cause you're going to take the SATs. I forgot to mention that. That's going to be our next big thing. Man, you really like to put me through the ringer. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm going to be running a damn marathon. <laughs> no, you're going to be running a daycare. That's oh, God. No, that's worse. That's worse. That's that's uh, uh, that's worse, but but yeah, this it, it definitely positions Sweden as sort of like the responsible, you know, uh, orderly place, and you know the the man is sitting there and he's he's looking around. He's like, this is not responsible and orderly, and and he's very he's very outright with discussing the conflict too that that a lot of people might tiptoe around. What I also really like about this is that at the very end, uh, he's obviously trying to find an out. And so he keeps saying, you know, I need to have a knock on the door so that uh, the story can happen. If you reflect back at the beginning of the story, we are literally just thrown into it. There's no knock on the door. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. It's, it's, it's already in progress. It's in media res. And... It's very much, you know, uh, just jumps right in. So you have to ask the question, 
did the writer write the knock at the door or or did he speak that into being the one that that brought the bearded man in with his pistol you know like how did this come to to be is it it's a chicken and egg situation here yeah and that's that's actually really it's like an aroboros eating its own tail except for slightly missing <laughs> i think that's that's the only way i could sort of wrap my head around it but that's what's great about this story. And it reminds me a lot of a couple of the different Joyland stories is there are so many different angles from which you can come at it. But the big thing is it is throwing you that sort of surrealist, postmodernist, weird fiction thing that I am just loving reading right now. It's one of the great things about this podcast is I have to, or I'll disappoint all of our fans. Yes, as our millions and millions of fans would be very disappointed in us. Uh, so we definitely don't want that to happen. So yes, keep keep reading. Um, but but yeah, it's it's definitely it's this this story was I found absolutely delightful. I connected to it as a writer, but I feel like anybody who's in a creative sort of production area, anybody who does that, whether it, even if it's just for for a hobby, you know, I sometimes feel guilty for not spending time cross-stitching. I mean, that I haven't made one red cent from. <laughs> and it's not like it's my job, but I'll sometimes like look at my current project and if it's been a couple of days, I'm like, <sighs> and I don't even cross-stitch anymore. I embroider now, so, <laughs> but I still call it cross-stitching just out of habit. But yeah, so like it, it, that, that guilt that you feel that forces you into trying to produce and that also makes it so much harder. And then, uses tropes like the idea of having a man walk in with a gun, you know, in order to provoke action in the story and, and you know, sort of juice things up, uses Chekhov's gun. It's just, I, I feel like it's really, really beautifully, beautifully done. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, and also, you know, it's not like the rest of us, you know, just love your cross stitch so much and, you know, we miss you doing them. I'm not, you know, not saying that, that, you know, you're not disappointing us at all by not doing it. No. Oh, that, that <laughs> guilt button. You're, you're, you're hitting it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think one of the things about a story like this that I really like is that not only does it have all those angles, but it's just so much the writer seeming to poke fun at himself. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a, a self-awareness and a, and a sort of uh, a sense of humor in there that that I appreciate like look at me I can't make anything and in the process he's making something yeah I think that's and really in the end isn't that what we all want to be doing right yes exactly uh we want to be making fun of ourselves for not doing the thing that we're actually currently doing that's right which I guess is the single most podcaster thing I've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth yeah Oh, yes. uh, hey, Christy. Yeah. <laughs> what should we read next week? Next week, we should read The Costume Maker by Debbie Vance. Aha, look who was prepared. The Costume Maker by Debbie Vance. Yes, yes. I was drawn to this one on electric literature. Uh, they, they do uh, a little, I don't, I, I don't know yet if it's a line from the story or if it's sort of a... Uh, a summing up or something but in addition to the, having the title they also have a little kind of blurb and the blurb from this one is death is her next big commission 
And I was like, I'm in. Uh, I am super duper in there. Your instincts. Follow them. <laughs> and it has a really beautiful illustration for it too, like uh, photography of, of all these. That was another thing that drew me to it. Uh, so we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that next week, but photography of these, these different types of white sort of couture uh, outfits on, on mannequins. It's really beautiful. Yeah, that suit dress is lovely. All right, See, you like, win this I, round. I like the one with the, the, the floofy, uh, floofy skirt. Oh, that is a floofy skirt. That, yeah. does, that does qualify as floof. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, until next week, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast.